This is episode 228 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, The Opus of William Stout. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I am delighted today to welcome two Bills to the show. We have Bill Aho with us, my partner in crime, and also a very special guest. We're so honored to host today. Uh, William Stout is with us. So, Bill, welcome, Bills, I should say, welcome <laughs> to the show. Hey, happy to be here. Happy to be invited. Yeah, thanks. So I'm going to introduce uh, Bill Stout. He was born in Salt Lake City, and at 17, he won a scholarship to the California Institute of the Arts. He began working as a professional artist in 1968 on comic strips and graphic novels. He moved on to work on Little Annie Fanny for Playboy and doing covers for Firesign Theater. I was so excited to see you had done the cover for In the Next World, You're on Your Own, which was released in 1975 because I personally spent so much time staring at that cover while I listened to the record. There was so much to look at on that cover. So yeah, that I was really uh, surprised and thrilled when I saw that you'd done that cover. Oh, that's uh, Bill then began working on rock magazines like Bomp, movie posters, and movies, and has now worked on over 30 films, including the Conan films. Actually, over 70 films. Now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we have, to, <laughs> we have to constantly update our stats here. Isn't that amazing? Uh, working with Roger Corman and Jim Henson, Masters of the Universe, Walt Disney's Dinosaur, Man in Black, Pan's Labyrinth, and work for uh, Christopher Nolan and Frank Darabont. He's done a huge amount of paleontological art, dinosaur exhibits and murals, sculptures, paintings, shows, books, speaking, trading card sets, game works facilities. He's also traveled to Antarctica and Patagonia especially Antarctica, researching the last continent, including dives under the ice and developing artworks to raise awareness about the animals of Antarctica. And close to home for us in San Diego, Bill has been painting large murals depicting prehistoric life in San Diego for the San Diego Natural History Museum. I could go on and on about all the books and work that he's done, but I better stop there. Uh, so that we can do some questions. But yeah, oh my gosh, what an amazing amount of work you have created. You know, it's really a remarkable uh, just body of work that you've done. I, are you tired? <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't sleep much. Oh, so really? All that time to work. I, I sleep more now than I used to. I used to just get by in five hours sleep. I just feel fine. Now I'm about six or seven. 
Well, I can see what an advantage that is. Maybe I should take that up because it's amazing how much you get done. <laughs> I did want to start with a question about paleontology because I was curious what first drew your interest to that. When I was three years old, my parents took me to see my very first movie. We didn't have a TV set back then. It was before folks had TVs. Mm -hmm. uh, so they took me to the Reseda Drive-In in the San Fernando Valley uh, to see the 1952 re-release of the original 1933 King Kong. Uh-huh. And I think it did damage at a genetic level. <laughs> right. You were forever changed. <laughs> I have been nuts about that film ever since. It's still my favorite movie of all time. And it really introduced me to dinosaurs. And I became a dinosaur fanatic. And just I had to read and learn everything I could about dinosaurs. I was a science math major in high school. Oh. Not an art major. Uh, because I was planning to be a doctor. Oh. And when I switched my major at the very last semester to art in high school. Well, uh, my parents happily did not flip out. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> very, very supportive. But one of the advantages I have over other artists is I have a science math background, so I can read the scientific papers, no problem. And those papers are just a wealth of information about the creatures that I'm reconstructing. I know your your dinosaurs and stuff are just amazing. You you're so you have so much detail that you are able to put into your into your art. It's just phenomenal. Oh, thank you. Oh, in addition to the twelve murals I've got at the San Diego Natural History Museum, right next door at the San Diego Zoo, I've got two more murals uh, that are in the Elephant Odyssey compound. Uh, one mural depicts San Diego back when it had elephants and about eighty other prehistoric creatures in the form of mammoths and mastodons. Oh, so I recently saw this then. If I recall correctly, the thing that I'm remembering wasn't just a mural, like a plain old mural, like a painting. There was actually a, quite a lot of information inside the mural about what came when. Is Am I remembering this correctly? I, I did <laughs> one of prehistoric San Diego, but the other painting shows the exact same scene and setting, but yeah. it still exists today. Black bears and cougars and wreck. Yeah, that's right. I spent a long time looking at those. It's really a great display. Oh, gosh, who do that? I would meet the artist someday. That's amazing. <laughs> cool. That is my favorite kind of work of everything that I do. I, I've worked in almost every different field of art, but painting murals for museums, that's number one for me. Wow, that's great because more people get to see them when you're out to see things. And you hit a really wide range of people that way. I mean, people just... When, when they see your art, I mean, the, the, like I said before, the detail of this draws people in and there's so much to see. When you were small then, when you started to draw, what did, what did you draw back in when you were like five and six? I drew cartoons. Uh, I remember, I have a distinct memory of drawing a cartoon of a guy in jail eating. <laughs> <laughs> what matters to a five-year-old, yeah. <laughs> that if you went to jail, they fed you beans. So I did a drawing of a guy in jail eating beans and coming out of his butt were the letters. <laughs> because, you know, the more you eat. Yeah. More. <laughs> and and you were five or six, you were young. So that, that's, that's the. Uh... It was, to me, it was a serious picture. I see. But I showed it to my parents and they just started laughing and laughing and laughing. They thought, You're like, why are they laughing? This is actually real. Right. But I, yeah. but I like the laughter. Okay. <laughs> okay. Good. Uh huh. So, 
one of the hallmarks of a lot of the work that I do is I have a sort of a very subversive sense of humor that I try to insert almost everything that I do. Was science fiction always your passion in, in, in your art? I'm not really what I would call a hardcore science fiction fan. I, I read science fiction. I'm a huge Ray Bradbury fan. Yeah. He became a very close friend of mine. And Harlan Ellison was another great science fiction writer. He was a very good friend of mine. But it was, I think I was about 14 when I picked up my first book by Edgar S. Burroughs. It was the first Tarzan of the Apes book. Mm-hmm. I read that. I wasn't real impressed, but then somehow I got a hold of a paperback copy of Warlord of Mars, one of the John Carter series. And I read that and I flipped. Uh, boy, uh-huh. I and when I found out there's more of these, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> so I read all, read all 10 of those. Then I started to read all the Burroughs books. And a lot of them did feature dinosaurs, like The Land That Time Forgot. Burroughs' uh, vision of a, a life at the Earth's core uh, with all kinds of prehistoric life in it. So it, it combined a couple of things that I was really, I love science fantasy and science fiction, and I also love drawing dinosaurs. So I started to do my own Burroughs illustrations. There was a, a fanzine, a very nice, beautiful, full color fanzine called Herbdom. And I would occasionally contribute pictures to it. And an unpublished book by Burroughs was discovered called I Am a Barbarian. It was the oh. story of Caligula as told by his personal slave. And so I was real excited to know that there was going to be a new Edgar Rice Burroughs book. And they got Jeff Jones to illustrate it. And when I got my copy, I was a little disappointed in the Jones illustrations. They were a little too simple for me. Mm. I wanted to see a lot more detail evoking that, that life in ancient Rome. So I did, I think it was six illustrations of my own, uh, each one in a different style. I did one in the style of Frank Rosetta, one in the style of Al Williamson, one in the style of Roy Crankle, one in the style of uh, Carmen Infantino and Murphy Anderson. And uh, now you're just showing you know. off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he didn't print them until about a year or two later. But as soon as they got printed, I got a phone call from Russ Manning asking me if I would like to be an assistant on the Tarzan Day of Sunday and Daily newspaper strips. Oh, cool. So I was a huge Manning fan. I had all the Magnus Robot Fighter comics, and I loved what he was doing with the Tarzan comics. And so I, boy, I took that job, and I learned so much assisting Russ on that strip. It was just a fantastic opportunity to be mentored by someone who was really a fabulous artist and a and just a great, decent human being as well. Wow, that's incredible. Things align right for certain people. And, and man, you're in the right spots at the right time. Just this past week, I've been marveling at the incredible luck I've had in my career. When I started in, in movies, we had this uh, receptionist who was very sharp. And about two months later, she became uh, John Millis's personal assistant. And about two months after that, she became Steven Spielberg's personal assistant. <laughs> I was sharing offices with Steven Spielberg and <laughs> Millis and Ron Cobb. And, and then this young lady, two years later, produced E.T. It was Kathleen Kennedy. Oh, wow. Wow. Who is from your area, from the San Diego area. Uh-huh. She's impressive. I got to become friends with Ray Harryhausen. I was, oh, wow. <laughs> when I was a little kid, my mom would drop me and my brother. I've got three younger brothers. Drop us off at the Reseda Walk-In Theater. And I remember seeing a full-color ad for Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, and I was flipping out. I had to see this movie. So that was our movie for that Saturday. And after it screened, I called my mom 
up and I said, mom, don't pick us up. I want to watch it again. Yeah. And I saw it seven times in two weeks. I mean, his, his stuff was ahead of his time, big time. I mean, the things he could do with the stop motion stuff was just incredible. It was fantastic. Plus it had that great Bernard Herman score too. Mm. Really uh, music scores from that point on became a real passion of mine. I see. One of the things we talk about a lot in our podcast here is um, music, records, vinyl. I was always fascinated in the fact that you, and in the early days of records, you know, when, when we were searching for records when I was young, if you find a bootleg record of something, it was like finding some kind of holy grail, a treasure. It's like, oh, man, because I lived all the way up in upper, upper Michigan. So I was far away from a lot of like L.A. or places that might see stuff like that more often. And when it would show up, it would just be like you want to show your friends. You want and then you want to be able to hear it. And sometimes they were, you know, sometimes they were good or bad. But whenever your art was on it, it almost seemed like that was the better quality you knew you're getting something special here. How did that whole thing start for you? Well, uh, one of the reasons that those bootlegs that I worked on were so special, there was the name of the company. It was called Trademark of Quality. And I held their feet to the fire. I said, if that's your name, then you've got to put out the best quality bootlegs there is. Oh. The folks out there don't know what bootlegs are. It used to be really easy to uh, go to a concert, bring a Sony tape recorder and tape the whole thing. No one would say anything. You could get right up to the stage and take photographs of the pop stars as they're playing. A lot of these guys would bring a massive tape recorder, tape the show, and then have uh, like 100 or 200 vinyl copies pressed up and then sell them on the streets in Hollywood. Even some of the uh, record stores uh, sold them. Mm -hmm. It made for a nice souvenir for a, a real hardcore fan of, of the bands that were playing. And uh, I remember I had just seen a great Led Zeppelin concert and I saw about half a dozen people taping it. So I thought, hey, I bet there's going to be a bootleg of this show. Well, it turned out to be one of the greatest concerts I ever saw. Oh! And so I was so excited. I couldn't wait for that bootleg to come out. I walked into my favorite record store, Record Paradise in Hollywood, and there it was in a bin. But it had this horrible, horrible cover. Uh oh! I was just like, and out loud, I said, God, you know, the band deserves better than this. I wish someone would get me to do these covers. <laughs> I would pick me. <laughs> I, I feel the same. I, a lot of times I feel the same. A guy in the shop tapped me on the shoulder and he said, you want to do bootleg record album covers? Oh, wow. Said, uh, yeah. <laughs> Meet me at Selma and Las Palmas, <laughs> six o'clock Friday night. Be alone. <laughs> so, ooh, that sounded mysterious and oh my last moment it's a real seedy part of hollywood but uh i showed up friday night six o'clock i was standing on the street corner and this coupe rolled up with smoked windows and one of the windows came down about an inch and a piece of paper came out and i took the piece of paper the rolling stones winter tour and there was a list of songs and the voice inside said see you in two weeks same time same place be alone <laughs> so I went home and I, I did my first bootleg record album covers for the Rolling Stones and I really loved the cover that Robert Crumb did for uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company Cheap Thrills and oh. so I, I did a similar format in that there was an illustration for each song plus I caricatured each member of the band in the cover as well so two weeks later I showed up and uh, the, the car rolled up the window went down a little bit and I 
put the cover in like I was mailing a letter. <laughs> and just put it in the slot. And the $50 bill came out. <laughs> I was wondering so, if you were going to get paid. Yeah, I hear. Actually, <laughs> the bootleggers uh, developed a, a trust in me that I was not going to turn them into the FBI. And so we started meeting face-to-face. And it became very exciting. I, I did, I think, a, over 45 bootleg record album covers. Wow. For the Who, the Yardbirds, uh, Lot of Rolling Stones, Beatles, uh, Santana, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck. All, oh, my them. God. That's just amazing. So, And they were so fun. And they weren't really threatening any of the, the legitimate recordings. I mean, the people who would buy bootlegs would already have all the legitimate releases. Right. And so this was just like a little icing on the cake to to be able to hear these bands. You know, some of the bootlegs contain uh, rare B-sides or European singles or different oh, sure. stuff that, that were unavailable officially. I worked on an album called Who Zoo. It was a double album of, of just that kind of thing, plus TV appearances as well. That led to, I, I got a, a call one day from the who and they were asking my permission to use one of my bootleg record album covers on a disc that they were putting out called odds and sods john entwistle had picked up who zoo and he hadn't realized how much unreleased stuff there was by the who so he put together an official package called odds and sods i was delighted to allow them to uh, use one of my covers as the picture art on the compact disc Oh, um, yeah. What an honor, right, to be selected. Neil Young contacted that. me. He wanted to use two of my covers in that nice. big box set that he did, the gigantic box set. I think there's about 12 CDs in it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask how the artists were, would react to your, to the, I mean, the bootleg, they have sometimes good or bad re- results. Um, I have a friend who is a, a musician, and he says, if they stop buying the live stuff, then I'm doing something wrong. So he, I mean, they, they want to be able to know people are sharing it and promoting it. I was from Michigan. We never got Led Zeppelin or The Who or any of those bands to ever play anywhere near where we were. So to find a live concert that we could listen to is like we got to experience what the rest of the U.S. got to see. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it was a, a service in a way. In fact, I know I didn't do the cover for it, but the bootleggers put out a live Elton John concert that was better than the legitimate release that Elton put out. Oh. So it's like, come on, guys, step up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you can't make a record that's better than a bootleg, maybe you should be in a different business. Mm-hmm. I think the artist sometimes gets gets too involved and they want to take away all the warts and all the, the little things that give it the heart mm-hmm. and, and, and make it more of a how they think it should sound but really people want to hear the the rawness and the and the passion of the of the concert or the show we have a record swap meet here in pasadena at, at uh, pasadena city college and i was at it and a guy recognized me and said hey you're the guy that did the bootleg covers right i go wow yeah. he says uh i want to do a whole new series of bootlegs but they're going to be released legitimately through shout records shout factory and uh, we're going to pay the royalties to the bands. It'd be great if you do the covers for these. And I thought, that sounds fantastic. So I did covers for Iggy Pop. I did a cover for The Nice. I did a cover for Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Todd Lindgren, and Arthur Lee and Love. Wow. Yeah, I had so much fun doing those. I, I ran into one problem, though. I'd done a 
beautiful picture uh, for the Knights. That was Keith Emerson's first band before Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. They had recorded three songs with uh, that mentioned Azrael, Angel of Death. Okay. Keith Emerson called me up. He said, Bill, I just saw your cover. I love it, and we can't use it. I go, wait, why can't you use it? He goes, it's got Azrael, the Angel of Death. Our drummer just died. If his widow saw him, oh. uh. out. And I said, oh, oh, let me do another cover. <laughs> so I did one illustrating a, a favorite cut of mine called Flower King of Flies. <laughs> then he called me again. He said, uh, I got the Emerson, Lake and Palmer cover. And I, I, it's great that you did a manticore on the cover because that was the name of their own record company. But okay. whose face is that on the manticore? I, I said, Keith, you recorded an entire album of his music. That's Pesorsky. Pictures at an exhibition. Oh, uh-huh. that's a big album of theirs. Yeah, yeah. He was laughing that he didn't recognize it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't recognize it. Uh huh. Well, that is the thing about your covers. I mean, I'm serious when I say I just sat there and stared at that cover because there was so much to see in there. It was like Richard Scarry's busy neighborhood. You know, there's just so much happening in on that street, Police Street, right? Well, the Fireton Theater were especially fun to work with. The way that came about, there was a, a comic book dealer named Dave Gibson. He sold old comic books. Actually, I, I got I completed my EC collection by trading him my bootleg record album cover originals for ECs. And he called me up. He said, look, I'm, I'm going to publish. It's sort of a fanzine. The Firesign Theater put out a, a neighborhood fanzine called the Mixville Rocket. And they gave me permission to collect them all and publish them. And I'd love to have you do the cover. Ah. So I thought, oh, this is great. I was a huge Firesign fan. So I did the cover and I tried to do the cover in a way that sort of was a visual interpretation of what they did uh, sonically. Yeah, not easy. <laughs> <laughs> but but a lot happening, right? I mean, they go together, right? Because there's, there's so much activity. Well, we were both influenced by Harvey Kurtzman and Will Elder. They loved Harvey Kurtzman's Mad Comics. And one of the hallmarks of Bill Elder's work is all the little sight gags that get compressed into each panel. So I thought, well, that's a perfect way to do a Firesign Theater cover. Because if you listen to the albums, they're the only comedy group you can listen to and hear new stuff, new jokes. You know, your third or fourth or fifth listening. I know. So heavily layered. And so the fire sign, when they saw that cover, they just loved it. And they said, uh, they asked me if I would do the, uh, their next album cover, which was uh, Next World, You're on Your Own. Gotcha. Now, Columbia fought against that because I was. they didn't know who I was. They didn't know if I could meet a deadline. They didn't know if I could actually do an album cover. But the cover that I did, I, I showed off my smarts. I put the, the name of the album and the name of the group at the top. So if the record's in a bin and you're flipping through, you'll see the name. That's really important to selling albums. I see. Then the other thing was I gave it two front covers. So no matter which way it was in the bin, you were looking at a front cover. Ah. CBS or Columbia Records just loved that. Uh Uh-huh. They started to give me all kinds of work uh, for other of their acts. And then the Firesound Theater, they recorded an album called Everything You Know Is Wrong. (laughs) And they decided to make a movie out of it. And so they did sort of the reverse of, of what is done is they shot the movie to the record rather than shooting the movie and recording the record afterward, recording the sound and the dialogue. And uh, so I participated in that. That was actually the first movie I ever worked on. And I designed and built props for the film, and I was an expert oh. in, a, in a party scene. And Oh, really? Oh, you're in the movie? 
it's a blue moss party. Everyone's drinking this blue moss. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I know there's been talk about at some point a collection of a lot of your bootleg covers and um, maybe hopefully other covers that you've done for other artists too in, in a collection. Is that going to happen at some point or? That's my most requested book. I'm working on it right now. I'm, I'm near the end of a th- big three volume box set that Fles Publishing is going to do on all my comics related art. Each volume will be about 350 pages. It's massive. Wow. But I'm doing a separate volume on my underground comics work and a separate volume on all my music related art. Oh my God. My <laughs> is, is in both of those because I consider Fireside Theater sort of underground comedy and also uh, underground comics were an influence on them and they were an influence on underground comics. So I figured they should be in that book as well. Did you actually do an underground comic at one point? I'm not. I just did a page count or a picture count for my underground comics book and uh, it ended up being 325. <laughs> oh my God. I guess that yeah, counts. <laughs> Because I have a lot of old underground comics, but I don't remember what you were doing then. The ones you might have, you'd be most likely to see would be, uh, I did two slow death covers. Okay. I have a few of those. I did the slow death cover of a guy protecting a baby seal. It was a special Greenpeace issue. All the proceeds from that Greenpeace. And actually, it was interesting. You know, at, at Comic-Con in the early days, Harrison Ford would be a regular guy there because he was a comic book collector. You'd see him going through the boxes and the bins and stuff, looking for stuff he was looking for. And there was a, a little kid who was the son of the guy who was distributing all the comics in the L.A. area, all the underground comics in the L.A. area. And that was Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh. <laughs> the wee kid, you'd see him at the last gas booth laying on the floor reading underground comics. Oh. Now, I read an interview with Leo. Oh, gosh, must be about six months ago. They had asked him, what sparked your interest in saving the environment? Because he has donated millions to environmental causes. Yeah. And he said, well, it was this underground comic I was reading. There was a story called Animals Your Children Will Never See. And I went, oh, my God, those are my story. That's what sparked him. And I was I was blown away. I couldn't believe it. That's that's awesome. I mean, that's yeah, that's that's really cool. You never know who you're going to influence with different things. And man. That moved things forward quite a bit. That helped a lot of things in the world, I would I would think. Oh, yeah. And people think art doesn't matter. Ha! Take, <laughs> take, take that. Exactly. Ha! That's a real sore subject with me. In the 1960s, America owned, I think it was eight, over 80% of all the patents in the world. And then they started cutting the art and music classes from the schools. And now we're down to about 17%. That's interesting. Yeah. Don't become an artist. Even if you don't become a musician, exercising that form of creativity can yeah. affect all your other work. It can affect the ideas you come up with for your regular job. Yeah. Create, creativity is something that really needs to be, it's hard to teach it, but you can find ways to make it grow inside people. And once they get a passion for something, then it becomes just incredible the, the amount of things that they are able to accomplish and, and all different things. When I was in the fifth grade, my teacher caught me drawing in class when I should have been listening. Instead of punishing me, he said, Bill, do you have any more drawings like this? And the kid next to me said, oh, you should see it. He's got a whole book full of monsters that he's drawn. And he said, would you mind bringing that book in so I could see it? I was just pleased not to be in trouble. Oh, sure. And now when he said monsters, I was thinking Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, Mummy. But 
later that afternoon, I realized, oh, he was talking about dinosaurs. Wow. Well, I want to disappoint him. So that night, I <laughs> did the entire rest of the scrapbook with dinosaur drawings. I did him the next day. And he started assigning extracurricular art activities to me. He knew I wanted to be a doctor. So he'd say, Bill, I, I think the class needs a, a big poster of the human musculature system. Can you do that for us? Oh, sure. <laughs> or I, I think the class needs the human skeletal system. And so I didn't realize it, but I was teaching myself anatomy. Oh, yes. And that's what shows, you know, in your work, right? I mean, as Bill mentioned, it's that faithfulness. And that's why the, they seem so real. So that, that's why I dedicated my first book, my big dinosaur book, The Dinosaur mm. Fantastic Mirror of a Lost Era. I dedicated it to Elliot Wittenberg, my fifth grade teacher. Oh. I think without doing what he did, I probably would not have become an artist. Oh, my. It's the amazing, yeah, that influence, right? The other thing I was going to say, I'll, I'll just say this now while it's still on my mind. You know, I'm really struck by this story about you talking about that album having two front covers. And I think that's one of the things that we lose when we channel people into occupations and maybe don't expose people who aren't going to be artists to art because seemed obvious to you probably, or at least like, well, this seems like a logical thing. Then either way it's in the bin, it's going to show. Right. But maybe if you're brought up in a certain, with a certain mentality, you don't have that lightning bulb moment where you come up with something that's really pretty ingenious and makes a lot of sense. And so that's one of the reasons, you know, as Bill talks a lot about creativity, that it's really important to, to encourage creativity the way your teacher did, not just because they're going to contribute in a certain place and in a certain part of society or in the economy in a certain way, but just because they're just more expressive human beings who come up with great ideas in all kinds of different fields. I don't know. What, what, how, what do you think of? about all that? Well, there, there's so many crossovers. If you look at history, Bach and his family were not only great musicians, they were great math mathematicians. Mm -hmm. There's a real connection between math and music. Yeah. When I look at music, to me, it's almost like a formula, beginning, middle, and end, this equals this, because there has to be a balance to the music. I, I, was, <laughs> I was good at math too, so to stay in shape, I run three miles of hills every other day, and I, I like to do algebra problems in my head. I love solving for X. It's just, to me, it, it, when I had math classes, it was like the the assignments and the problems of this, like, oh, these are, they're asking me to do puzzles. This is great. Right. To me, it was math puzzles. It wasn't, there was nothing tedious about math. It was, it was always fun. And hey, let's solve for X. Let's find out the secret answer. And making it a game sounds like a good way to teach it, really, because then, then it becomes like a, a fun thing as opposed to, oh, who cares about X? <laughs> but, when you, but when you're making it like, well, what, what's X this time? And you, you get excited and you get people excited about it, then it changes the whole outlook of how they, per, how they perceive it. Plus, I use math every day. I use algebra every day uh, to figure out uh, proportions of pictures that I'm doing. Yep. You know, I rarely work the size that it's going to be printed. I like to work larger, as most artists do. So mm -hmm. it shrinks down and everything tightens up. But I've got to know how to do algebra to figure out the proportions of the picture to blow it up. 
Yeah, what your word crossover made me think of that too. I know when I first started learning again to to play the piano, relearn how to play the piano, it had been decades since I'd played. And I really almost felt as though my part of my brain was literally waking up, like my head physically felt different. And I really wondered how much of that is in fact, literally crossover in your brain from different kinds of activities that you're used to doing. And then you start doing something different. And if different parts of your brain are firing, I mean, someday we'll probably, this will all seem really silly and we'll know a lot more of that. But, but I wonder, I mean, do you think that engaging in activities that seem unrelated, in fact, I don't know, sort of expands your ability to create or imagine or communicate? Yeah, I think it gives you more building bricks, uh, you know, and I also think it's a situation of use it or lose it. I noticed uh, when I work on films, uh, in between films, my sense of humor will will start to dwindle a little bit. When I But when I get on a film with really smart, funny people, suddenly I'm stepping up and it is making my sense of humor. It's giving it a sharper edge, making it more creative and, and more accessible to myself. And, you know, and what's more fun than laughing? Uh-huh. And around people like that, then it makes makes you want to be able to not really compete, but it's like you want to be rise to the occasion. Right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a couple of fan questions that I've talked to somebody and they go, oh, 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 you have to ask. And, and all, of a sudden, <laughs> they, all of a sudden they start giving me this list of stuff. I said, I'll, I'll take a couple of them and we'll see what he says. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this this person knew your history about almost everything, it seemed like. But. Here's the first one. With the revival of Masters of the Universe, any interest in reissued art prints for the Masters of the Universe pre-production art? Well, actually, on my website, my shop, uh, I think it's called the William Stop Bazaar, I have a book from Germany. It's it's 50 bucks. It's a huge book, and it's got all 130 of my production designs for Masters of the Universe printed in full color. The way that started out is I was contacted by a, a German Masters of the Universe magazine. They wanted to do an interview with me. And we did a big, long interview. And after the interview was over, they, they said, well, uh, can you give us any art to show with the interview? And I said, how much would you like? And they said, how much have you got? I said, I've got 130. They said, we'll use it all. <laughs> and so it went from being a little magazine to being a big, fat, full-color book. Wow. By the book for me, I, I also enclose the uh, English translation of my German interview. <laughs> that's that's terrific that they were willing to do that yeah. or ex- and excited about doing that. Yeah, that that's an an amazing production, right? A, a thing. <laughs> yeah, got all my set designs, got all my costume designs, creature designs, uh, weapons. Uh, well, every everything that you saw on the screen. So cool. Okay, here's another one: Wizards movie poster art that you were given the freedom to customize, alter the peace character and the lizard he was riding. Was that freedom for you? <laughs> I got a lot of freedom with that one. Here's how this happened. I was doing a whole series of advertising illustrations for a company in Westwood, which is a part of Los Angeles. They called me up one day and they said, Bill, we've got something a little different for you. It's a movie poster. I said, oh, that sounds like fun. What is it? He said, it's a full length animated feature. I said, Oh, great. Are you going to show it to me? Said, no, you'll do a better poster if you don't see the film. 
Wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't bode well. For <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I said, well, well, how in the heck am I going to know what to put on the poster? And they said, well, and they gave me a stack of really fuzzy frame blowups from the film. I could barely make out what was in them. <laughs> and I said, what do you expect me to do with this? They said, Bill, and this is one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten from an art director. They said, Bill, just think of the poster as doing a poster for your own movie. Uh, ooh, oh, I can do that. Oh, That's cool. interesting. So I took a couple of what looked like prominent creatures in the films, and I just drew them with the way I would draw them if it was my movie. Oh. And that became the poster for the film. Well, it was the teaser poster. Four days before the release of Wizards, they called me in a panic. They said, uh, 20th Century Fox thinks your poster is going to be t is too scary and too scary for kids. And I said, <laughs> kids love scary. What are you talking about? That'll bring them in. <laughs> got to change it. I said, change it. The, the movie's opening in four days. Yeah. They said, we have a printer waiting for you. Oh. <laughs> you have got a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. So, so I redid the poster. And uh, took out the bones and the flies and the skull and, and put in mushrooms and flowers and butterflies. And that became the official poster for the film. But most people prefer the original version, this, this scarier version. Well, well being that the um, movie was by Ralph Baskey, was there communication back and forth at all at any point with him? I didn't meet or speak to Ralph Baskey until the poster was printed. Uh, then he loved it. He, called, he wanted to meet the guy who did it, so I went over to to his offices, and uh, that was the first time I met Ralph. Okay, I actually got one more for you, and this actually, I'm only bringing this one up because we talked about a little bit earlier about your work on the John Carter of Mars. What would it take to, to cause a revival of that property? He wants to see more of that stuff. Wow. Well, I worked on several different versions of that movie. I, I worked on it uh, when John McTiernan was going to be the director. I worked on it when Kerry uh, Conran, who did... Uh, Sky Captain, he was going to be the director. I met with John Favreau, and he was going to be the director. The only oh, version, I, the only version I didn't work on was the one that got made. Oh <laughs> Lord! I remember I was working on the the first version with uh, John McTiernan. He directed uh, Die Hard and Hunt for Red October. Really good director. Yeah. And I hear from his room, my studio on the on the film was right next to his room, and I hear him say out loud, "Virginia." Wow, does he have to be from Virginia? Uh, he should be from Alaska. That's a much more butch state. <laughs> and I went, oh no! And I put my pencil down. I walked. <laughs> Wait I said, a minute. <laughs> um, um, let me. Let me. I got to talk to you about this. He said John Carter was a captain in the Confederacy, and his side lost, and he was devastated, and so he tried to escape his world, and he went to Arizona, where he gets cut up in the Indian Wars. Then he ends up going to Mars, and there he has an epiphany. What he does better than anybody is being a warrior. And now he's in the middle of a civil war, a world civil war in Mars. And if you, if you make him from Alaska, you lose all that. Mm. Also, I, I was designing uh, one of the cities, since this is, as I described, a, a sort of a world civil war. And I thought, well, most able-bodied people in their culture would probably be warriors. So the upkeep of the cities would be lacking, especially near the outskirts, which were being attacked. So I, I pictured uh, Helium, this main city in Mars, is, is sort of like Beirut, 
which gave me a great sort of jumping off point to inform the, the viewers of what was going on in this world. Now, as to whether or not John Carter can be a viable franchise, when I was working on the Carrie Conran version, we had about a dozen artists. There was me, Ian McKaig, Bernie Wrightson, Mike Kaluta. So it's terrific artists. Yeah. And uh, first thing we did is we went around the room. Okay, what is this movie? And Ian McKaig and I said the same thing. It's the greatest romance of all time. It's a romance that transcends two worlds. The film that got made didn't have that. Oh. And I think that is key, absolutely key to making a John Carter of Mars film. You have to have that incredible heightened romance. And the casting of that film, to me, Dejo Thoris looked like John Carter's mom. I mean, he was too young. She was too old. And it just didn't, it just didn't work for me. Yeah. We're throwing down the gauntlet right here. This is it. Yeah. Here's the <laughs> challenge world. Come and pick this up. Now, I, I still, I like the movie, but I, I didn't love it. There was some beautiful stuff in there, but uh, I don't know. Just overall, it, it wasn't the film I was hoping it would be. Do you think it would be better live action or would it be better animated in some ways? Well, you know, that was the big problem I had when I was working with John McTiernan. How are we going to do these creatures? They had me designing suits for camels and suits for elephants. And then Jurassic Park came out and McTiernan came into my office. And said, this is incredible. We can do this whole thing CG. We can do all the creatures. We can. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. John, John, uh, how much computer generated imagery do you think is in that film he says it's all over the place there's dinosaurs in almost every scene i said there's uh, i think there was a total of maybe 12 minutes of cg oh. the rest was, was stan winston's puppetry and and creatures and stuff oh. and i said and those 12 minutes took two years and he just kind of you know slouched back to his office and <laughs> But special effects is an area that that was one of my areas of expertise in the film business. So what special effects were you working with in what films? Oh, my favorite special effects are really old school effects. Uh, in Conan the Destroyer, I designed uh, what are called hanging miniatures. That is where you can hang stuff in front of the camera so it looks like it's part of the scene that the people are in. And I, I love stuff like that because you get it in the can. You don't, there, there's a saying now Whenever uh, something goes wrong in shooting, oh, we'll fix it in post. That means fixing it in post-production. I would rather get it right on the spot mm. rather than waiting several months for it to be fixed in post-production, which is expensive. Mm. So I, I like good old-fashioned uh, cheap special effects. But they don't look cheap usually, though. That's the no, thing. They, don't. they look fantastic. And and if you do it right, the audience can't tell they're looking at an effect. Yeah, I was... Curious, it seems as though drawing is quite different now, or I see a lot of young artists focused on creating art on their computers, mm -hmm. and a lot of art is needed for video games. And oh, yeah. in some ways, you know, it's kind of similar to what you do, you know, very detailed work on weaponry or gadgetry, equipment, you know, just all kinds of things, right? Specialized feet and all that kind of stuff. So I was really curious what your thoughts are about those kinds of artists or 
yeah, what, how, how do you see art now as it's evolved from, you know, kind of old school, how we used to do it to what, how young artists are doing it now? Well, I found that the best CG artists are also guys who work traditionally. I see. The ones who, who can only work on computer, eh, they usually can't draw. Usually uh-huh. run into certain, pro- all kinds of problems and stuff. And they're, they're very limited in what they can do. But if you can do both, then boy, you're in business. And so what what is happening for people uh, vocationally now, young artists? So <laughs> it, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I'm just curious. Well, a lot of us older guys aren't, aren't getting the, the amount of work that we used to get. Ah, but uh, that doesn't bother me. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in the twilight of my career now. So I'm mostly just putting together stuff that I've already done. So that doesn't affect me that much. I do do a little bit of Photoshop stuff. Usually uh, if I do comics, I'll color them in Photoshop. Okay. Boy, I don't have to cut friskets and do airbrush, which is great. <laughs> I see. Yeah. So sometimes it's, the technology is helpful. And when I have my oil paintings shot, I'll I'll have them shot digitally, and then I'll put them in the computer, and I'll take out all the little sparkles or the little flecks or defects or hairs or whatever the is in there, just to make it a little nicer. Mm-hmm. And so, do you talk to young people who are interested in pursuing art as as a career? Oh, sure, and, all the time. And and so, what do you what advice would you have for them? Learn to draw. <laughs> <laughs> The quickest way to get good as an artist is figure drawing uh-huh. from a live figure. The quickest way to get good as a painter is to do plein air paintings. That's where you go out and you, and you do a little 9 by 12 or 8 by 10 inch painting. That, that teaches you composition, design, and color. And nature is always surprising me with her color combinations. Uh-huh. So it's, it's a real learning experience. And at the same time, it doesn't take much time because you've only got an hour or two to do the painting because of the sun changing the shadows as it goes across the sky. Paint fast. Paint fast. So uh-huh. I love fast. Uh-huh. <laughs> I still do figure drawing every Sunday at my studio, three hours. Oh yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. Uh-huh. And do you work at all with the local schools or academies? Do they ask you to come in and teach or? I've lectured at Art Center. I did a lecture and an exhibition at uh, LCAD, which is the Laguna College of Art and Design. And I've spoken up at the Art Institute of uh, San Francisco. And uh, usually when I have museum shows, they'll have me come in and I'll I'll do a, a lecture there. But I'll also do a, a class showing kids and adults how to draw dinosaurs. Uh-huh. That's a real popular event. I bet furnishes the paper and all the markers and pens and all that stuff. And I, I have an easel and I tell them, uh, you know, step-by-step step how to do a dinosaur. Yeah. It's so, it was so fascinating to me having uh, boys as sons and then also working in the children's department of the public library, just the eternal attraction of dinosaurs. I mean, there's just something really, really cool about dinosaurs. So yeah, that was, you'd encounter that a lot, these child childish drawings of dinosaurs there's something about it it's not just boys anymore oh no when the society of vertebrate paleontology back in the 1970s and back then it was about 94 percent male but i go to their meetings every year they're in a different city every year to stay updated on all my dinosaur information and now it's about 50 50 in fact it was my friend sue hendrickson that discovered the tyrannosaurus rex that was named after her oh wow yeah 
last time I, I had met you at one of the cons, mm-hmm. you had a, a new book that had come out, I think, at that point, which is a big volume of a collection of all your things. Fantastic Worlds. Six-pound book. Gigantic. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. You want to talk a little about that so people know about it? So, because I think that was a fantastic collection. I'm really proud of that book. For a book that huge and with that many pictures, normally so many things could go wrong. <laughs> and they didn't with that book. I got really lucky. My publisher, Inside Editions, they did a spectacular job on it. And each chapter is on a different aspect of my career. I tell my oh. students, if you want to become famous, do the same thing over and over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If uh, That's the quick path to fame. But I said, that would bore me to tears. I like diversity. I like variety. And so I chose what I call the slow path to fame. <laughs> <laughs> and But each of those, there's a chapter on my Antarctica work. There's a chapter on my comics. There's a chapter on my film design. There's a chapter on my theme park design. Uh, there's a chapter on my music-related art. The public gets to see, oh, it's one guy who did all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, originally, when I would make appearances at, say, Comic-Con, and people would come up to me and they say, I really love your work. And I say, well, which work are you talking about? Mm-hmm. They say, oh, your album covers, of course. That was me, sorry. Or your- <laughs> <laughs> what else you got? <laughs> you wouldn't know that the same guy did all these other things. Uh-huh. And then I think it was 1992, we put out the first set of William Stout trading cards and that united my fan base Uh. because the cards represented all the different areas that I worked in. And we did three sets of cards. And so that's, it was uh, 270 images. So that, that was fantastic way of putting people together and making them realize, yeah, the guy who did the album cards that you love also did the movie posters that you like. To go back to music, are there any particular covers that uh, that you think of immediately as, you know, just covers that you're especially proud of or covers that you thought maybe didn't get as much recognition as they should or just anything that stands out in your mind in that area? I love the cover I did for Iggy Pop. I love mm. covers for musicians with with sort of very strong public personas. And, and Iggy is one of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. The, the album was called Roadkill Rising, and I've got Iggy Pop on the cover, his arms out, and he has no skin. It's just all raw muscle. I remember that one. There's that one. Uh, I did a bootleg cover that I just loved. It was uh, I'm a huge Yardbirds fan, and this was Yardbirds More Golden Eggs. And I drew each of the Yardbirds as a bird in, in a sort of Arthur Rackham style. Arthur Rackham was a, a early 20th century children's book illustrator from England. And so it was combining two different loves of mine, my love for the yardbirds, my love of, of drawing and painting birds, but also working in that, that beautiful old children's book illustrator style as well. Nice, really nice. That was the first semi-legitimate bootleg. I found out that Keith Ralph, the lead singer of the yardbirds, was living just over the hill from me. So I called him up. I said, Keith, we're going to put out a, a bootleg record album of yardbirds music, uh, how about if we play the album and you do commentary and then I, a little interview afterwards and in exchange, we'll pay your, your month's rent for your apartment. He said, 
great. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's a five page insert that's included in the album, which was the entire interview. And and, uh, on the back cover is my photographs that I took of Keith during this session and uh, his signature. So it was that was really such a fun fan project. Well, I just love how you approach your work with, you know, just not too many preconceived notions. Yeah, that a lot of things can happen. It must be really fun to be inside your brain, but also to work with you, you know? Yeah, because you, you're just really open to, yeah, trying different things. Well, just pay your rent, you know? Yeah, why, why not? And yeah, when people are game, then you know you've got some interesting people to work with. Yeah, well, one of the things is uh, I really deeply benefited from my art school education. I went, we used to call the school by its old name, the Chouinard Art Institute. That was the school that Disney left his fortune to. It was the school that trained the Disney animators in the 1930s. Madame Chouinard allowed them to attend night classes. And when I was going there, it was probably the best art school in the world. Uh, Harold Kramer was the head of the illustration department. He was the very first president of the Society of Illustrators. Ravi Shankar was the head of the music department. Wow. Uh, Edith Head <laughs> was in charge of the fashion design. Wow. wow. He's won more Oscars for fashion design than any other person in the planet. Uh, oh, the animation department was taught by Disney's nine old men. <laughs> so you, you couldn't have better instruction yeah. back then. It was just unbelievable. And uh, the saying back then was if you went to Art Center and, and majored as an illustrator, you would graduate and you get a decent job. If you went to Chouinard and graduated as an illustrator, you'd either end up working at a gas station or being world famous. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) nothing in between. (laughs) So I use what I call this Chouinard method for solving problems, which is most artists have a particular style they work in. I let the job or the problem itself dictate the style. I don't try to force one style on everything. I think that's a huge mistake. And so since I can work in in a lot of different styles, it just makes it more fun for me too. Oh yeah. Do you have a favorite artist of like, there's a William Corbin or Frank Frazetta, all those kind of characters. Do you have a favorite of those guys or? Well, Frank Frazetta was a huge influence on me and and we were good friends. And uh, Jean Giraud, also known as Mobius. Oh yeah. A friend of mine. And I, I, learned a lot from uh, being with Jean. I got to hire him to work for me on Masters of the Universe. Uh, I think Mark Schultz is one of the greatest artists around working out there. His brushwork is spectacular, especially his dry brush work. Those are those are three biggies. Harvey Kurtzman. Oh my God, I learned so much from Kurtzman. Working out with him and Willie Elder and little Annie Fanny, that was an incredible experience. And, and Harvey told me in the beginning, he said, you're going to learn a lot of things from us. You may not realize it right away, but you will eventually realize it. And without a doubt, uh, month by month, a little what I call Kurtzmanisms will bubble up into my brain and, and re-educate me on something. Now, now Harvey, what, didn't he also do some magazines in the past? Like, was it Help or Humbug or one of those? He created Mad. Right. And did the layouts for the first 23 issues, which were a comic book. And then he turned it into a black and white magazine. And I think he did several issues after that. Then he started Humbug, and then he did Help. Yeah. Uh, he did Trump with Hugh Hefner. There were only issues of that. And Hefner said, Harvey, I gave you an unlimited budget, and you exceeded it. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Yeah, there's a really nice humbug collection out there that if people want to learn more about that, it's nice collected works. It's really great. I learned so much from Kurtzman. I remember I was admiring uh, some drawings he had on the wall of his studio from some artists had sent these drawings in because they wanted to work with Kurtzman. Mm. Wow, those look really nice. He goes, no, look at the shoes. I go, look at the, yeah. Look, guy draws the same shoes on everybody. Yeah. Or look at the hands. He uses the same hand positions. I remember I was working on one page of Annie Fanny. It had a fire hydrant in it. And I drew the fire hydrant. And uh, after I finished drawing, Harvey said, how did you know how to draw a fire hydrant? I said, well, I just remember what they look like. He says, grab your board, grab your pencil. We're going to go outside and look at a fire hydrant. And so we did. And I saw all these little things that I didn't include in my drawing. And it instigated what I call the Kurtzman curse. (laughs) Everything now. Because uh, it, it just adds so much to the authenticity. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could have used that cartoon fire hydrant. Mm-hmm. But it was so much more important to have something real there. And that's also something I learned from Russ Manning. He said, we're doing a, a sequence in Tarzan with fantasy creatures. So make sure that everything around them is as realistic as possible. If there's ropes, make it look like real rope. Because then the public, they'll see that. That's a real rope. They'll believe the creatures. Wow. Yeah, there's something about that that comes through to the audience, even really, you know, uneducated people like me. It's partly why we get sucked into that world, right? Because it's so vivid and so detailed. And what we do know looks authentic, as you say, looks genuine. And so then we we accept the rest of it as being, yeah, as being legitimate. It, it's an interesting conversation you have with your audience that way, which must make paintings and painting and drawing dinosaurs especially interesting because you know i've never seen a dinosaur i don't really know what they look like there's a bleed through to other areas too because i'm good at drawing dinosaurs and i know dinosaur anatomy i know all the muscle systems and all the skeletal systems when i do dragons i can apply that to dragons so it makes the dragons more believable because i'm using real anatomy in the construction of the dragons yeah, and it's so it's exciting, right, for the viewer because you see all that, right? It's like you're learning from looking at something, right, mm-hmm. which is really a very cool thing about art, all oh, that educating that you're doing. Yeah. Well, that, that's one of the joys of art is there's always something to learn. There's always another plateau to graduate to. And if there isn't, you should get out of the business. You should always constantly be educating yourself and trying to improve and learn new things. I, I think that's so important as an artist and as a human being. That's yeah. what I was just yeah, going to yeah. say as a human being. Yeah, that's definitely. Yeah. Every, everyday use. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh huh. And also for your brain. I mean, as you said, I think, you know, we don't know this yet, but it wouldn't surprise me to discover that there are parts of your brain that you need to keep active. And art is one of those ways of doing it. Yeah, well, it's been really so great to have you come on the show. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and telling us the stories. And yeah, it's really been a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thanks for having me. Before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, let them know of any upcoming events or places on the internet you'd like to refer them to? Okay, this coming weekend, I'm going to be in your area. I'm a guest at the San Diego Comic Fest. Uh, for those of you who don't know what the Comic Fest is, it was a show created by Comic-Con in response to the people who were saying, hey, Comic-Con doesn't seem to be about comics anymore. It seems to be all about TV and movies. So oh. San Diego Comic Fest is strictly comics. 
And it feels like Comic-Con about 30 years ago. It's incredible. It's, it's terrific. I'm on three panels this weekend. So that's well worth mentioning. So uh, is it is it at the convention center here in San Diego? No, it's at the Hotel Circle. Okay. Mm-hmm. At the Sheridan. Okay. So over the entire hotel. Nice. We have a blast. It's great. Oh, that I'm, sounds super fun. I'm also going to be at Wonderfest in Louisville, Kentucky uh, around the first week of June. I'll be at Comic-Con in July and also Dragon Con in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Labor Day weekend. Hopefully this year we'll have my, my big three-volume box set of all my comics-related art out from Flesk Publications. Uh, Last Gasp is going to be the publisher of my Underground Comics collection. I haven't chosen a, a publisher yet for my music book. I had COVID in January 2020, but uh, sequestering was no big deal for me because I'm an artist. I work anyway. So. Yeah, for some people, it wasn't that big of a deal to remain in isolation because they were they were kind of isolated anyway, just doing their own thing. <laughs> and, and some preferred it over actually talking to people. <laughs> How about websites or things that you want to direct people to at all? Yeah, my website is it's pretty easy, williamstout.com. And I've got a shop on my website uh, where I carry my books, record album covers, posters, all kinds of stuff. And I sign everything that I send out. That's the advantage of, of me over Amazon. You don't, Yeah, you don't get the stuff signed. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good point. Well, thank you so much. It was really lovely to talk to you. Good luck with everything. And keep us in mind, Bill, if there's something you want to come back on the show and talk about, we'll be excited to see you again. I'd love it. You guys had great questions. Oh, thank you. I mean, it was just great talking to you. I mean, I knew it was going to be a wonderful time and it exceeded my expectations. <laughs> yeah. Our expectations were infinite and you exceeded them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you later. All right. Adios. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.